Check, check. There we go. All right. Yes, the Lord is worthy of our best, and I think that is a, a great example of offering our best. It always amazes me to see how the Lord gifts his people with various gifts, and uh, that is one I do not have, is singing. Uh, so thank you guys for being here today. Excellent job. Uh, this morning will be in Ephesians chapter 5, Ephesians chapter 5. While you're turning there, for those of you that do not know me, my name is Michael Bean, and I'm one of the associate pastors here at Riverview Baptist Church, and we are thankful that you're here with us today. Today is kind of a uh, second part, a part or portion, excuse me, of a uh, two-part series kind of on faith at home, on faith in the home, and today we're going to be looking at the idea of marriage, the, the foundation of a gospel-centered marriage. And um, why I preach on this, I think primarily because of, of two kind of distinct reasons. Number one, um, as sinful fallen people, we have an incredible propensity, an incredible tendency to make essentially everything about ourselves. Uh, but the same is true, obviously, of marriage. We have this tendency to make it about ourselves, to make it about us and our way and our expectations and our happiness. But the reality is, is that is not the case. That is not what God has primarily designed marriage for. And so we'll look at that a little bit later on. But the other thing, uh, in light of launching last week our Faith Path Initiative, and I'll share with you for just a moment about what that is in case you missed last week. But um, when I was called uh, three years ago to come and be an associate pastor at Riverview Baptist Church, one of the things that, that I was tasked with was um, thinking about family ministry. And uh, over the past three years, I've had the opportunity to, to really pray and think through what is it that Riverview can do to come alongside families and support them. And, and last week is um, essentially the culmination of that time. We've been looking at uh, a, a spiritual formation process for families, a spiritual formation process whether you're a grandparent or a parent or um, even just a, a Christian that needs some, some help in how to follow Jesus. There's kind of 12 steps meant to be used over a course of 18 years. And... Um, Last week, we, we kind of put that out, and they're in these packets that look just like this. And, and one thing that I forgot to mention last week, uh, kind of a, a big thing to forget, was that it was a soft launch. We wanted you to have time to go home and think about which one is the best fit for you and your family and to pray about that, because it's very easy to get overwhelmed with each kind of one of these different concepts. And so we wanted you to have some time to take this home. I forgot to mention that, so many of you are running around saying, where, where can I go? Where can I find these? Well, today, you can find these in the back of the auditorium or... Uh, across the hall in the breezeway there in, uh, towards the multi-purpose room. You can find these. Um, but this is our, um, I guess, hope, our desire to come alongside the family and support you, not just to talk about what it looks like to be a spiritual leader in the home, but to actually do that. And so here's the second reason that I wanted to talk about marriage today, and that is very simply this. Uh, we cannot be the father's and mothers and grandparents that we're called to be without first being the husbands and wives that God calls us to be. The simple reality is this. We can have the best tools and practices. We can have the best parenting strategies and techniques. We can have anything that, that this world might offer. But if we do not start with marriage, then we are already off course because Jesus Christ, God, has designed marriage 
uh, to be very unique, and it's to be a display of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And each and every day, we either display that well or we don't. But one way or the other, we are displaying a message to a watching world, and we are displaying a message to our family, to our children, to our friends that are in our homes. And so this morning, I want us to stop and talk about this. Pastor Spencer mentioned this a little bit last week, but I think it'll be helpful to drill down even deeper this morning. So if you will, please go ahead and stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. We'll be reading Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 33 this morning. Let's read together. The Word of the Lord says this, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any other such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together this morning. Father God, we thank you for this day. Lord, we thank you again for the the privilege and opportunity to gather together as your people. And Lord, now we ask, God, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. God, that our hearts and minds would be opened to your word this morning. God, that our, our lives would be changed from the things that we hear today. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you for the hope that we have in him, for the the victory that we have in him. And today as we talk about um, marriage and how it is a picture of your love for us, Lord, we pray that, that you would help us uh, to, to seek to obey you in our marriage relationships and in every other relationship that you give us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, um, this morning... We're going to kind of look at and unpack this idea of marriage and, and what it looks like to have a gospel-centered foundation in our marriage. And I think one of the things that's, that's kind of important to go ahead and uh, get out of the way is, is just this idea that none of us have it all together. I have a friend who kind of says it this way. He says, um, I don't care who you are, I don't care who you talk to, every marriage is at least a little bit dysfunctional. And uh, I said, oh, really? And he said, yeah, anyone who says otherwise is either a newlywed or lying or both. And, uh, and I think there's some truth in that. We can laugh at that, kind of laugh at ourselves and say, you know what? Um, no matter how many times I've heard this passage preached, no matter how many times I've thought about this idea of marriage, the reality is there's some real truth there. Because when God puts two broken, sinful people together, saved or unsaved, um, there's going to be some friction there's going to be some things that, that come up, and part of that is God's design in marriage. So we're going to uh, kind of look today at what is marriage? What is marriage this morning? And we'll have a couple of different answers to that that kind of provide uh, some pictures and help us understand um, some different aspects, some different perspectives on marriage. The first one 
Pastor Spencer mentioned last week, it's not necessarily in this text, but it's the idea that marriage is a covenant. Marriage is a covenant. We hear that very often, but I want to just take a moment and reinforce that very quickly, that marriage is a covenant and not a contract. We live in a society that is built on contracts, and one of the things that happens is because of that, our society quickly associates marriage with just the idea of a business uh, transaction. It's just simply, we have a contract, and the contract does one of two things. It forces two people to, to kind of hold their end of the bargain. It forces those people to hold their end of the bargain to stay committed to one another. And so that is not what marriage is. Marriage is built on mutual trust, mutual love, and mutual respect, so that when a husband and wife make a vow to one another, they're doing so based on a relationship that already exists, based on a foundation of love and trust and respect. And so it's a positive type of commitment versus a negative one. But the other thing, and even I think more importantly, is just simply this, that a marriage is a covenant because God is the one who undergirds it and holds it together. So that when a person goes before an altar or before a judge or whoever on this earth, they go before a congregation, but they go before Almighty God. And they make vows before him and to him and to one another. And so that there's actually three people in this transaction versus just the two. Um, We know this from Scripture. What God has joined together, let no man separate. And so God is the one who binds us together in marriage. Um, But not only is marriage a covenant, we're going to see in this passage that marriage is a tool to shape us. Marriage is a tool that God uses to shape us. Let's look very quickly at um, verses 22 and 25 together this morning. Verse 22 says this, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. And then fast forwarding over to verse 25, 25 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. You know, notice this is a very interesting thought that, that Paul's description of marriage in this passage includes two commands. It's not just a description of what marriage is, but there are actual commands that are given to you and to me, to anyone that would enter into the marriage relationship, that we're called to obey. Why? Why? Because marriage is not just for our happiness. As is often said, marriage is a tool to make us holy. Yes, it is true That there is certainly joy and happiness found in the marriage relationship. Absolutely. But if we get things out of order and we try to make it about us and our happiness, then very quickly we're going to be off track because we haven't built our foundation on what God says marriage is. Marriage is a tool. That's why the commands are there. If you've been married for very long, you know that this is true. Two sinful people will very quickly be able to point out, if you put two sinful people in a room, very quickly they'll be able to point out the other person's sin, right? But who do they struggle to find the sin in? Themselves. And so God puts these two people together in the marriage relationship to mold us, to transform us, and he gives us these commands to see, will we yield, will we bend, will we follow his ways instead of our own? The constant force of the marriage relationship in our lives is meant to refine us in tandem with the constant command that husbands and wives are given here in this passage. Um, These are two very simple commands. They're easy to understand, right? But they're incredibly difficult to live. They're very easy to understand. They're so easy that a child could read it and understand it. 
But it's so complex, it's so difficult to live day in and day out, year after year after year, and to fulfill these to one another. Why? Because God intends marriage to be a tool to shape us, to, to cause us to yield to Him. Just as water is refreshing and life-giving, it can be very gentle, so is a marriage that is in unison to God's commands and roles. But in the same way that water can be refreshing and gentle, it can also be incredibly powerful, incredibly transformative. Uh, We know this. We've actually uh, recently seen in our country kind of the negative effects, the negative power perhaps of water. When we look at places like Houston, when we look at places like Puerto Rico or Miami, we see what water is capable of. Not only that, if given enough time, water can literally move mountains. It can carve out deep valleys. It can be incredibly transformative. And the same is true of God's commands to you and to me inside of this marital relationship. God's commands are absolutely transformative. And if we choose to live in rebellion to those commands, then we will have to face the transformation that he calls us to. Um, Not only that, I want to kind of quickly take a a short aside here for those of us that are not married, because I believe that there can be uh, this idea of, well, this is another sermon about the family, this is another sermon about marriage and and those sorts of relationships, so if I'm here and I'm single, then, then this doesn't apply to me. And so I can just kind of turn things off, I can kind of tune out. I would very quickly say to you, uh, please don't do that. Because, um, number one, as we're going to see and talk about again in a few moments, that marriage is a picture of God's love for us. And so as we think about marriage deeply together, we can think very carefully and clearly about God's love and the way that He is faithful to you and to me. But not only that... Um, The gift of celibacy is a tool that God has given to to each of us, at least for a time in our lives. That God calls us to live in purity before Him for whatever amount of time that we're single. And in the same way that the marriage relationship and the commands that God gives here can be transformative, so can it be for celibacy. God can show us, you know what, because marriage is not ultimately about our happiness, it's about our holiness, God can use our married relationship or our lack thereof to show us that in life, what we really need, what we really search for, yes, partners are important. Yes, a spouse is important. But what we really need and what we really search for is God. And so God can use either way, whatever condition you find yourself in, in a married relationship or in celibacy, he can use his commands to shape us, to mold us, to transform us more and more into his image. So we see that marriage is not just a covenant, but marriage is also a tool, a tool to transform you and me. Secondly, marriage is a gift of great intimacy. Marriage is a gift of great intimacy. Let's read verse 31 together this morning. It says this, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. In your Bible, it probably that, that verse is probably either in quotes or is capitalized. And the reason for that is that that verse is actually a quotation of another passage of Scripture. Where does that passage of Scripture come from? Genesis, the beginning of the Bible. In fact, the second chapter, in the very beginning of the book of Genesis. Uh, go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 2. Hold your spot there this morning. But turn very quickly to Genesis chapter 2. 
I just want to show you this because I think it can be very helpful. Genesis chapter 2, verses 24 and 25. At the beginning of time, at the beginning of creation, this was God's decree, this was God's plan. He says this, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Verse 25. So, what does this mean? What is this one flesh union? In fact, if you go back to Ephesians, the very next verse, Paul calls this a mystery. He calls this idea a mystery. And the reality is, is that it is a mystery. Commentators have kind of put forward different ideas, different things. But one thing that we can certainly say is that marriage is an incredible gift of great, great intimacy. When God takes two separate lives and brings them together in a very real sense to become one life, to become one family unit, to become one thing that is new and different than the two things that were once before. When he does so, a man is to leave his father and mother, and he is to forsake all others. He is to forsake all others. Why? Because this two becoming one is meant to be a living picture, a living metaphor for the spiritual reality of a person being in Christ. Paul talks about this phrase, being in Christ, being with Christ, being in Christ throughout his writings in the New Testament, that we're one with him in many ways. And at the, at the very beginning of the world, God made a living parable to show us this idea of two becoming one. When a person comes to saving faith in Jesus Christ, God himself, through the person of the Holy Spirit, comes and dwells in them, with them, forever. And we are one with God in a way that we were not before. We are a new and living thing. And so God creates new life through marriages, and God creates new life for those that come to know Jesus Christ and are saved by his grace. And so it is an incredible picture. But not only that, something interesting in the very next verse in the book of Genesis, verse 25, the Bible goes a little bit out of its way to kind of mention this idea of nakedness, that they were naked and unashamed. Why? Well, just a a chapter later, in Genesis chapter 3, the fall happens. Sin enters the world. Sin enters the marriage relationship. And suddenly, the husband and wife are naked and ashamed. The Lord says, who told you that you were naked? Because sin has now entered and caused a division, caused a sense of separation. The connectedness that once was there, the trust, the love, the respect, the unity that once existed inside of this relationship had somehow now been fractured by the reality of sin. And so, today, I think, understanding and stopping to think about what this means for you and me, for me inside of the marriage relationship and outside of the marriage relationship can be incredibly helpful, can be incredibly informative. Because here's the reality. Just as we talked about the metaphor of marriage, um, I believe that this idea of nakedness in many ways is another metaphor, not just in the historical account of Genesis, but also in real life, as we go through life. That as a person is naked, nakedness is a metaphor for vulnerability and intimacy and transparency. And so a man and a wife are meant to live lives 
that are in many ways naked in front of each other, emotionally, physically, and spiritually. There is to be a vulnerability and an openness there that is unique to that specific relationship. Very simply put, a man and his wife should know each other in a way that no one else on the planet knows them or ever will. That's the kind of intimacy, that's the kind of depth, that's the kind of relationship that a husband and wife are meant to have to each, to each other. Excuse me. I have a friend who kind of summarizes it this way. Um, and this is a generalization, but I think it can be helpful because many of our, our uh, discontentment in marriage can be kind of around these two things. He says that men want women to be physically naked oftentimes and women want men to be emotionally naked. And, and that is not something bad. Both these God-given desires for sex and emotional intimacy are meant to complement each other. And what is so easy to do is, in marriage is to pit these two things against each other. Our culture has designed, or actually, excuse me, not designed, but defined intimacy as really just one thing. Sex. But see, that's such a lie. Intimacy is such a deeper thing than just the physical act of sex. And so when we take sexuality and we just try to define it as a physical act, we miss the reality of what is really happening. We miss the reality of what's really going on. You see, sex is so much more than a physical act. It is literally the giving of yourself to another person. And the emotional intimacy that women often desire and the physical intimacy that men often desire are meant to complement each other in a way that would breed further and further intimacy. However, so often, it's very easy to try to separate the two. But God has designed it that these two things would work together, would work in unison, would work in harmony through this great mystery of the one flesh union. So, a man and his wife are supposed to picture Jesus' love for his church. How do they do that? Because they continually love each other in spite of their flaws. Even as the ugliness is exposed, even as the problems occur, even as things arise that weren't anticipated, they continue to love each other through that transparency through that vulnerability. And so picture this one flesh union to a watching world. So we see that marriage is a tool to refine us and shape us. Marriage is a gift of great intimacy. But marriage is also a living picture of the gospel, as I've already alluded to. How? Well, as we've already mentioned, marriage is meant to show us day by day, as Christians live by faith, and, and live lives together to show us what the gospel is. And so I think in order for us to understand that, we need to just answer this question, okay? Well, then what is the gospel? If marriage is meant to picture the gospel, what is the gospel? I would submit to you that the gospel is the life-giving good news that King Jesus Christ came to earth and lived a sinless life and died in our place on the cross, that he bore my sin and your sin, that he bore my shame and your shame, so that we might be forgiven of our sins and restored into his kingdom, to the place that we belong. And so Christ calls us to come to him, and we can't miss that. Christ says, come to me, all you who are weak and heavy laden, and you will find rest. Come to me, and you will find rest for your souls, for my burden is easy, and my yoke is light. 
He says, come, whoever you are, come as you are. It's a beautiful thing. But one of the things that Jesus also says is this. Jesus also says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? See, one of the things that's, that's um, really universal in the world around us, not just in America, but you see it, I think, because we live daily in our culture, is that everyone wants a Savior. Everyone wants help. Everyone wants somebody to come and take, rid, uh, t- take care of their problems. Everyone wants someone to come and remove the difficulties and hardships that they face. Everyone wants God to rescue them. But you see, friends, not everybody wants a Lord. Not everybody wants to bow the knee to Jesus Christ and say, yes, you're my king, you're in charge, I'll live your way from this day forward no longer in my own strength and in my own power. I'll yield to you. You see, nobody wants to go to hell, but not everyone wants to yield to Jesus' demands. And Jesus and God's word are very clear that we must confess him as Savior and Lord. And so if we're going to come to Jesus Christ, if he really is the king, if he really is God, then he sets the parameters on which we are to come to him. And so we don't get to come to him on our terms. We must come to Jesus, and we must come to him on his. Christians, then, how do they model this? How do they model this in the way that they're called to live inside of the marriage relationship? I think it's most clearly seen in this idea of Love and forgiveness. Christians model Jesus' love and forgiveness to each other day by day as they love one another and forgive one another. It's very easy when a person wrongs us to put a wall up. It's very easy when a person does something against us to, to allow a sense of separation to kind of settle between us because it feels safer. If someone hurts me, then I don't want to be as near to them as I once was. But you see, that's not the love that Jesus pictures for you and for me. When we sin against him, when we wrong him, he doesn't build a wall of separation between us. Jesus pursues us, those of us that will come to him on his terms. He comes after us. He is faithful, and he is loving, and he is long-suffering with you and for me. And so in living out a pattern of loving and failing and forgiving, and then loving and then failing and then forgiving, Christians model the unfailing love of Jesus Christ. We're not perfect. We can't be perfect as he is, but we can display an unconditional love to one another, to a watching world. And so this daily living of a gospel marriage is meant to be not the way, but a way in which we can evangelize the world around us. Our friends should look at our marriages, believers, if you're a believer out there, they should look at our marriages and say something is different about the way that they interact with each other. Something is different about the way that that family works. There's grace there. There's hope there. There's forgiveness there. There should be a sense in which we stand out. We look weird to the world around us because of the fact that Jesus Christ has changed us and shaped us. And we're constantly yielding to his love, to his commands. So now that we've, we've kind of looked at three or four different pictures of um, what marriage is, let's now look at how... Is a marriage supposed to be lived out? How do I live out a gospel-centered marriage? Let's go ahead and look at verse 33. Verse 33, I'd submit to you kind of two big ideas this morning. Number one 
is that we need to embrace God's divinely ordained roles in marriage. And this is difficult for us in our culture. But we need to embrace and receive God's divinely ordained roles for you and for me inside the marriage relationship. Let's look at this. Verse 33 kind of summarizes these. It says this, However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. And so again, the commands come back up. And these are not popular necessarily in our culture, and I've already mentioned how incredibly difficult these commands are. That in fact, in our own strength, we are absolutely inept. We are incapable of fulfilling and living out these commands. However, we're still called. The command's still there. So we must understand, what does this look like? And I think the easiest way, husbands, for us to, to think about this is loving and gentle headship. Loving and gentle headship. And I think we can answer this question, well, okay, well, what does that mean? What does that look like by just this, this question? How did Jesus Christ display his love and leadership while he walked on this planet? How did he do that? What did it look like? It looked like incredible, unspeakable, indescribable humility. It looked like a humility that was from another world because it was. You see, Jesus was God in the flesh. If there was ever a person that had the right to look at sinners and say, you know what, this is beneath me. This isn't worth my time. It was Jesus. If there was ever someone that was too good to spend time with the people around him, it was Jesus Christ. But he never once says, this is beneath me. He did the things that, in fact, many of the religious leaders of his time were completely unwilling to do. He shared meals with what were considered some of the most sinful people in the culture. He touched what was considered to be incredibly unclean when he healed the lepers, when he touched and healed the unclean woman. He did incredible acts of humility day in and day out. And that is how he led, humbly speaking to sinners, humbly sharing himself and his time with the people around him. And so, friend, if you want your wife to follow your leadership, the leader is Jesus did. Not self-seeking, not demanding, not harsh or overbearing, but with great humility, and then with also this, with a willingness to die. With a willingness to die. To die to yourself and your own personal desires and wants and needs as Jesus did, and as Jesus prayed, Father, not my will, but yours be done. And so, this is what it looks like to lead. Um, An illustration that hits home with me personally is uh, Saturday afternoons, this time of year. Saturday afternoons, what is on TV most Saturday afternoons? College football. And you know what one of my big desires are? To sit down on the couch, turn on the TV, get some good junk food, and park it for about four or five, eight hours if you'll let me. (laughs) But here's the deal. That's not what Jesus always calls me to. There may be a time and a place for that. In fact, there's, there's times that I do that. But there's also times that Jesus calls me to to put that aside and to deny myself and to love my family and say, you know what, I can tape the game and I can watch it later, I can do this or I can do that. And so, man, it may look like a myriad of things. That's just one example in my own life. But it looks like dying to yourself to hold up your wife, to show her that she's worth it, to show her that she's good, to show her that she's a gift and you know it. 
And so that is the leadership, the gentle headship that Jesus calls us to. And it's beautiful. It's so much better than a football game. So we are to model this gentle and loving headship. And, and I think Matt Chandler kind of sums it up well. If you know Matt Chandler, a preacher out of Texas, he says this. He says, Husbands and grandfathers and fathers every day ought to go to bed completely and utterly exhausted. I thought, well, that doesn't sound like fun. But, <laughs> but it's true that we ought to go to bed completely worn out because of this, because we have given everything that we can, everything that we are for our families. That we don't have anything left because we've realized what really matters. And it's not me having my little personal time to save a little extra for the, in the tank for tomorrow. It's to lay it all out on the line for my family to show the world, a watching world, how good my God is. And so we see the headship, we see the leadership that husband is called to. But not only that, we have the second command to wives. And so... What does this look like? And I would just submit to you that it's a truly respectful type of submission. That's not a popular word today, and I think many times, very quickly, this can have the connotation of lesser or less than, and that is absolutely in no way the case. And I think, again, the question that we ask, how do we find out what this means? In the same way that we said we must look to Jesus, we must look to the the relationship that, that Paul says marriage is meant to picture. And so we must ask this question. How does the church display submission to Jesus? How does the church submit to Christ? And um, the reality is, we call this the church building, but we are the church. We are the church, the people, the individuals. And so what does it look like for me to submit to Jesus? And I would, I would just say this, there's, there's two kind of ways you can go about this. Number one is a uh, dutiful kind of untrusting, skeptical, obligatory submission to God that says, you know, Jesus, I don't really want to follow you in my heart, but here's what I do know. I know that it's, it's my duty. I know that that's what you give me because I've read in your Bible all, all these rules, and so I'm just going to do this, and I'm going to go through the motions, and I'm going to give it my best shot. But you see, this is not what God has in mind for his people in relationship to him. Just as God tells his people that he wants obedience rather than sacrifice. In essence, he's saying, I don't want your religion. I want you. I don't want you to go through the motions. I desire a relationship. I desire you. I desire your heart. How do we know that? Because in that very same book, in First and Second Samuel, Jesus, or excuse me, God says that he looks not at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. You see, God desires the hearts of his people. He desires that we truly love him that we truly follow him. And the same is true of God's desires that a wife would follow her husband. And, and here's the really kind of interesting thing about this, is that it's actually, um, the power that women hold in this position is really very surprising. The power that, that a wife holds in this position is actually incredibly surprising. Truly, and here's why, because truly choosing to follow someone is, is just mind-blowingly inspiring. When, when a person follows you and says, I believe in you, I trust you, I want to I get behind you, there is a sense of responsibility, there's a sense of, of courage that is built up in the one that is being followed. 
And oftentimes, a husband's ability to lead his family can either be made or broken by his wife's willingness to believe in him and follow him. Show me a man whose wife supports and believes in him, and I'll show you a man who is strong, encouraged, and believes in himself. But show me another man whose wife will not trust or follow him, and I'll show you a man who's uncertain about everything, especially himself. You see, God has designed these two roles to work together to display the glory not of ourselves, but of him and his goodness and his gospel. And so by giving us these commands that are incredibly difficult and not easy, by giving us these commands, God calls both husband and wife to courage, to faith, and to love. And so we must embrace God's divinely ordained roles inside of the marriage relationship if we're going to live a gospel-centered marriage. But then, not only that, we must obey God's commands to love and respect as to the Lord. Let's look at verse 22 together real quickly. Verse 22 says, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. And that key phrase at the end, I think, is is incredibly helpful. As to the Lord. As to the Lord. I mentioned earlier this idea that grace is the motivator or should be the motivator inside of the marriage relationship. And that is absolutely the case because here's the reality. We need the paradigm of grace Ultimately, in our relationship with God, in our relationship with Jesus Christ, we need the paradigm of grace instead of a paradigm of performance. If we're ever trying to perform our way to Jesus, if we're ever trying to earn our place in our relationship with him, we're in horrible, horrible shape. But thank goodness, Jesus gives us grace upon grace. There is no sin so heavy, there is no place on this planet that you can go so far is to get away from the grace that is, can be found at the foot of the cross. And so this same grace that we need in our relationship with God and that he freely gives to you and to me is the same grace that we need inside of our marriage relationships. We're programmed to think that performance is the way things should work from the very time that, that we're born. We enter the world and very quickly, there's a system that arises, and it's not necessarily a bad system because it is, in fact, how the world works, that you get what you earn, and you earn what you get, and you have to strive and work for the things that you want, and there's a lot of truth in that. We see very quickly, you send a kid to grade school, and it's called grade school. Why? Because they're going to get grades. They're going to pass, or they're going to fail, and so very early in our lives, there's this messaging that you've got to measure up that you've got to be good enough, that you've got to earn it. And like I said, it's not all bad because that is how the world works in many ways. We do have to earn it. But thank goodness, not so with God. If we had to earn it, we're all in trouble. But because of the grace that he gives, because of the fact that we don't have to earn it, friend, then this, we can take that same grace and apply it to our marriages. So very simply, I'm not going necessarily to love my wife because she quote-unquote deserves it. I'm going to love my wife because Jesus deserves it. That's what he calls me to do. And so because Jesus calls me to it, I'm going to do it because he is worthy of my best. He is worthy of anything that he calls me to, and this is what he's given me to do. And so whether my, I feel like my wife deserves it or not, whether I've, I've, she's met my little list of, of demands and expectations, which is so wrong, I'm going to love her. I'm going to love her in a sacrificial 
way that reflects the love and goodness of the Father. And in the same way, I'm going to follow my husband. Lord knows not because he's necessarily the best leader, right? But I'm going to do it because Jesus deserves it, because Jesus is the best, because Jesus has called me to it. And so we do it as to the Lord, irrespective of performance. We do it as to the Lord. Can I just submit this to you? Last week, Pastor Spencer said uh, to kind of try to find a place in your life where you're incapable, to think about a place that, that you don't have what it takes to change. I would just submit this to you, that each and every one of us are incapable of changing our spouses. We can't. We're incapable of fixing our marriages. We simply can't do it. But we know the one who can. Jesus can. And so instead of worrying about what my partner may or may not be doing, instead of worrying about whatever demands and expectations or whatever I think this thing should look like, instead of coming with all these preconceived notions, I'm just going to lay those things down and I'm going to say, Jesus, please show me how to love my wife. Please show me how to respect my husband. Please show me how to do what I'm responsible for. And I'll trust this other person to you. I'll trust this other individual to you. So, I'm going to give you just uh, real quickly a very kind of practical way as we kind of end our time together. A practical way to, to live this out. Um, research shows that husbands and wives that attend church regularly, regular attenders of church, do not pray together. Research shows, in fact, uh, that the vast, vast, vast majority of churchgoers do not pray together regularly. Parents don't pray with their children, and spouses don't pray with one another. Why? Well, because we live in a very individualistic society, and I think oftentimes we feel that prayer, and it is, it is very private. Prayer is a very private thing. And so sharing our hearts with the Lord, we think, is really just between us and God, and that's true. But there is an incredible joy, there's an incredible gift that comes in praying with your spouse. And I just want to just kind of put it to you this way. Um, Praying together with your spouse is essentially the simplest way to foster Christ-centered intimacy. Why? Because when a spouse prays out loud with their significant other, with their spouse, there's about two or three things that are happening kind of simultaneously. Number one And most importantly, and most obviously, we're inviting the God of the world to come in to our relationship. We're acknowledging his lordship over that relationship. But secondly, a husband and wife, as they pray together out loud, we're called to bear our hearts in prayer, right? We're called to to lift our hearts up to God in prayer. And so as a person does so, as a husband does so, his wife gets to listen to what is on her husband's heart. She gets to hear his dreams and his hopes and his desires and his worries. She gets to hear what's actually going on. And the same is true for the husband. He gets to listen and hear her open her heart to God. And in so doing, there is an intimacy, there is a connectedness that happens very, very naturally. And so it fosters this Christ-centered intimacy. But the other thing that it does is it just serves as a very stark reminder that this relationship is not about us. It's about Jesus. It serves as a very stark reminder that this marriage is not based on our abilities. So as we pray together, we pray and we ask the one who is able together. And in doing so, again, we lay this foundation of Christ-centered 
marriage, gospel-centered marriage. And so my challenge to you this week, not uh, just to husbands or just to wives, but husbands and wives together, to try to find time for at least four times this week to pray together as husband and wife. To try to find at least four times this week, if not more, to pray together to foster this Christ-centered intimacy. So when we approach our marriages and families as though they're about our personal happiness, which is really the, the standard operating procedure of every person on the planet, when we approach marriage that way, we essentially miss the mark. We fall short. We miss God's beautiful design, God's beautiful plan to display the gospel through the marriage relationship. We miss communicating the gospel to our, our children and to our friends. But thank goodness, um, we don't have to just depend on ourselves. You see, we can't give away what we do not have. But Jesus has given us all that we need. Christ has given us all that we need. And so our desire here at Riverview Baptist Church is to come alongside you and to support you. There's a, the Faith at Home Center back here that has some some great resources. If you find yourself and you're saying, you know, I'm in a difficult spot today. I'm in a difficult place in my marriage. I'd encourage you to go back there and visit the center. If you're here and you're thinking, I want to pass on the faith to my children, but, but I'm struggling on how to do that, then I would encourage you to go and, and visit our Faith Path um, initiative at the back of the auditorium or in the multipurpose area, and you'll find there resources that can help you think about how to pass on your faith. At Riverview, we want to stand with you. God has given us the home, he's given us marriage, and he's given us the church, and the two are meant to work together. And so that's our desire. If there's any way that we can support you, we want to do that. Let's pray together this morning. Father God, we thank you for your goodness to us. God, we thank you for your love. Lord, that it is an unfailing love because, God, we fail so often. Lord, we thank you for the picture of the gospel that you have designed, that you intertwined into the relationship of marriage. And Lord, it's beautiful and good, and God, we pray that, that you would give us a renewed passion for our spouses. God, that you would give us a new desire to see our children come to walk with you. Father, we thank you for your goodness and grace to us. We thank you that through Jesus Christ, we have hope. And so, Lord, now we pray that whatever it is that, that you have spoken to us this morning, that you would allow us to humbly yield to you and to live as you've called us to live in our marriage relationships, in our friendships, in our families, wherever you may call us. In Jesus' name.